the idea of sexual relational satisfaction being linked to compersion was one of the biggest contributions of prior research. It confirmed that. And the idea that enculturation into polyamorous communities, so the idea of people being already familiar with the values and committed to the values of polyamory is a big factor in promoting compersion. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about compersion research with Marie Touin. Marie Touin is a PhD candidate in East-West Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Her dissertation research focuses on the experience of compersion in consensually non-monogamous relationships. She's also a dating coach and founder of Love Insight, where she helps people of all ages, genders, sexual orientations, and relationship styles navigate the path to loving and healthy relationships. Thank you for joining us, Marie. We're excited to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we've had some researchers on the show before, um, usually doing this kind of specialized research and researching consensually non-monogamous relationships and jealousy and things like that. And I'm always curious to know what brought you to this topic specifically. Yeah, well, it's been a a lifelong interest. I would say that it started, well, in childhood, my parents were in a non-traditional relationship. So they never wanted to be married. They never wanted to be a traditional couple living under the same roof. They wanted to have a child, but they wanted to keep their independence. Hmm. So I grew up with a model of relationship that was not really a polyamorous context. They were not poly, but they didn't give me a normative model to look upon. So I always knew that there were many ways to do relationships. Um, And then when I grew up, Um, and went to college, I realized that the way that most people conceived of romantic relationship did not totally resonate with me. I remember um, engaging with a guy that I really liked and wanting to make out with him one day and him saying like, well, I can't because I have a girlfriend. And me being completely stunned and wondering what that had to do with us. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you should break up with her, but I want to kiss you right now. What's the problem? (laughs) So I've always been aware that the normative model didn't fit the bill completely for me. And I, I knew that there were other options. So when I kept studying. Psychology was always a big topic of mine. I always loved studying different ways of doing relationships, and in particular, consensual non-monogamy. Like, how can people make it work outside of the monogamous model? And compersion felt like the epitome of success when we're talking about non-monogamy. It felt like the point where the paradigm really shifts from one of monogamous thinking to one of sexual freedom. So it felt like if something needed to be studied, it was that turning point. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. For you, your first contact point with compersion as a topic, was that more like a personal experience of that feeling or was it in a more like research or academic setting? A little bit of both. I had the feeling that in my personal life, I wanted to operate from a place of freedom. I wanted to operate from a place of loving people for who they were without putting possessiveness and control on them. I never had, you know, a long-term non-monogamous relationship where I experienced compersion substantially per se. So it was a combination of me having the intuition that it was possible but also looking at the research and saying that there's not much out there. So it's a combination of personal and professional interest. 
So we did an episode a while back, gosh, probably almost two years ago now with uh, Dr. Alex Beauvais about some research that he had done specifically about men in non-monogamous relationships with women and their feelings of compersion. And I forget the name for the type of this study, but it was uh, like based on an interview rather than a mm-hmm. scale or a questionnaire or something like that. And it was more than looking at the content of the words that the men used and trying to find trends that way. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? That sounds like qualitative <laughs> research. Qualitative research. Thank you. That's <laughs> yes. Uh, and that's the kind of research I'm doing as well. Okay, cool. Because it seems like for something like compersion, you really need to do that kind of thing because it's not just on a scale of one to 10, how compersive or whatever do you feel? (laughs) Because part of the problem is how do we define this? What is it really? So with that, why, why to you is compersion important to study? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I do think that qualitative research is so appropriate for that topic, partly because it hasn't been studied very much and there aren't ground rules or ground definitions of it yet. Um, So why is it important to study it? Well, first, we know that compersion correlates positively with relationship satisfaction in consensually non-monogamous relationships. So if we can establish some sort of roadmap to facilitate compersion, we can help consensually non-monogamous people achieve greater satisfaction in their relationships. And also, I would say for psychology in general and the psychology of emotions, compersion is like an undiscovered (laughs) goldmine, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. We don't have a word in the English dictionary yet. Compersion is not unfortunately, in a dictionary. So there's a lack of awareness around that emotion specifically, at least in, you know, English-speaking countries, which is a lot. Um, So I think the more we define it, the more we research it, the more we can create this awareness that jealousy is not inevitable. Mm. It's not the only outcome possible to a jealousy-invoking situation or traditionally jealousy invoking situation. So because of that, the word compersion has the power to dismantle compulsory monogamy or the idea that monogamy is the only healthy way to do relationships. Because of course, people who say that polyamory is not possible or not healthy always go back to jealousy and the fact that it's so inevitable and it's a suffering that people are going to have to live with and it's just going to make them miserable. But if we document the fact that some people experience compersion, then we can dismantle that idea that polyamory is bad. So very important topic. So last week we did an episode on language, and I think this is kind of a great segue into this whole talk on compersion and language and how it sort of needs to be melded into our current language in order for people to understand it and to start maybe thinking about it and using it. Can you talk a little bit more about that and just why it's so important to have a word like this in our our collective language and psyche? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Actually, I did email the Merriam-Webster editors a couple (laughs) of times to ask them to include the word compersion and the word mononormativity Mm. into the dictionary. And they said no on both occasions because it's not widely used enough. Mm. Uh, But I do believe very firmly that once a word gets integrated into the collective psyche, it facilitates the experience itself of the emotion. So I would say, for example, if we did not have a word for gratitude, we might not be as likely to practice it, to experience it, to benefit from it. And I think with compersion, it's very similar. We we need to have a concept that dismantle what we have learned, which is the fact that if your partner is going to be with somebody else, you have no choice but to feel jealous and to be angry and to be resentful and to be blameful. The word compersion in itself comes and challenges that idea. Mm. I have a question, actually, and I'm curious about this, how you've approached this in your research. But when asked to define the word compersion, I feel like there's two definitions, two slight variations that tend to come up for me. And I'm sure you've looked into this even more than I have. But 
One definition is the very polyamory, non-monogamy focused definition, which is it's like the feeling of joy at your partner having a good time with someone else or your partner Mm -hmm. having good sex or there's some little subtle variations, but it's kind of that meaning. Mm -hmm. And then the other definition being just this feeling of happiness at someone else's feeling happiness rather than jealousy of it. So more of an opposite of jealousy, kind of Mm -hmm. like maybe like the word mudita or something mm-hmm. like that in mm-hmm. that's a what Sanskrit word. It's a, yeah, it's, it's yeah. A Sanskrit. Yeah. 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 In, in your, I'm curious about in your research, you know, I mean, we come up against terms like mudita, which is also not really in the common parlance as far as what we talk about as a culture um, or talking about things like sympathetic joy. And I guess I'm kind of wondering like outside of the word compersion, what are the other like terms or language or labels that you found that like are maybe used a little more frequently that close, most closely match what we understand to be compersion. Mm-hmm. If you found any. Well, Mudita would be the main one. I haven't found any other ones. So Mudita is one of the four qualities of the enlightened person, according to Buddhism. And it does mean sympathetic joy. And it is practiced in an effort to dismantle the illusion of separation between us and other people. So it is a vehicle for getting out of our egos and for really getting into the paradigm of connection and togetherness and we're all one so in that paradigm your joy is my joy versus a more individualistic paradigm where more for you is less for me Mm. so i really love that analogy or just you know to really look into the significance of mudita as a spiritual word and the, the spiritual practice in buddhism and then apply it to compersion in all kinds of situations yeah, I, I really like the way that Mudita was once described to me by a Buddhist nun was this idea that the way that she said the way she thought about it was, yeah, I get to be joyful for free. Basically, I get to be joyful about someone else having done the work to get something good, you know, and so why why wouldn't I take advantage of that? Like, I didn't even have to work to get that boost. And it sounds great. It's very hard in practice, I find, if I try to apply that to all arenas in my life. But I really mm-hmm. liked that take on it. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a great ideal to look up to and to to remind ourselves that it's possible, that it's humanly possible. Mm. Not to take it as, well, I'm bad if I don't achieve that, because that's a trap, of course. Um, it can be a lot of pressure if we take that as the only way to do poly right or to to feel the right emotion. But it's nice to know that that it's a possibility. Mm. Yeah. And so to go back to where I started with my question is for your research, are you taking more of this general kind of mudita style definition for it? Or is it kind of more specifically about just romantic partners being with other people? How are you approaching defining it in the study? Yeah, I'm doing it specifically for consensually non-monogamous individuals. So I'm specifically speaking about partners, about intimate partners. Got it. Okay. Okay. It would be interesting to do a research about compersion in a wider sense, though. That would be amazing to ask people about their other experiences of compersion and the rest of their lives, um, which are very common. You know, people Mm -hmm. don't have a problem usually feeling happy for their kids who get, you know, a good, you know, a good placement in school or maybe like a, a friend who gets a promotion or just generally speaking, feeling happy for the success and the happiness of others. We just don't think about it in intimate context normally. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about it for potentially a maybe layperson who's not as interested or knowledgeable about non-monogamy or even someone who is monogamous, who would consider themselves monogamous to think about like their partner maybe doing much better than they are successfully in work or something along those lines. And I guess, yeah, I'd be interested to like integrate compersion studies into things like that, just so that people maybe can understand better how to be supportive of their partner if they get like a big promotion at work and 
things like that happen. Because I, I definitely have found in my own life, like at times, oh, well, something great happens for a friend of mine or my partner. And then I feel a little jealous because of it. Like that's still a universal experience, regardless of whether or not you're non-monogamous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's useful, you know, in those moments when we are feeling those tinges of jealousy to think, well, am I really losing something here to interrogate ourselves and look at the big picture? I mean, it's important to validate the jealousy because that's a real human emotion. But I do think it can be so useful to think about the concept of compersion in all life situations. Absolutely. And Uh, we were curious, has there been other research on compersion out there? Or is yours kind of it or the first or the biggest? Well, there's been very little, surprisingly little, I would say, because the field of consensual non-monogamy research has been exploding in the last couple of decades. There's been a lot of research on polyamory and other form of consensual non-monogamy But compersion has only been the focus of about five empirical studies since 2003, Um, most of them quantitative. So based on scales and measurements and, you know, what different factors can contribute to compersion. But there hasn't been a lot. There's been, I think, only one very in-depth qualitative studies in 2015 in Canada. Um, So mine will be one of the few. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say the biggest because it's not um, it's it's not easy to say which one is the most impactful (laughs) at this point, but it's going to be probably pretty important in the field because the lack of qualitative studies and really going in depth with interviews. Yeah. So uh, to Again, before we start talking about your research, just to kind of frame it in context a little bit, you did mention earlier on that, like, we do know that feeling compersion in a relationship is linked to relationship satisfaction. Um, So uh, of the, you know, scant number of studies that do exist about compersion, what were the things that we already knew? What were the things that had already been measured, you know, Mm -hmm. before you started your study? Well, one thing that we knew is that there is trait compersion and state compersion. So trait being more of a personality trait, something that people have as an attitude, and then state compersion being something that people experience in the moment, like an emotion that comes and goes. So that was already a pretty fundamental thing to discover, which is being reflected in my study. Um, And then, like you said, the idea of um, sexual relational satisfaction being linked to compersion was one of the biggest contributions of prior research. It confirmed that. Um, And the idea that enculturation into polyamorous communities, so the idea of people being already familiar with the values and committed to the values of polyamory is a big factor in promoting compersion. These are probably the three biggest takeaways of prior research. And yeah, could I, that could all I ask, makes sense. Could I ask real quick about the thing about the uh, state versus trait thing? Mm-hmm. It rhymes, so Jace loves it. I love it. <laughs> oh, I love it because it rhymes, yes. But I was curious to, again, to give a little bit more context. I've come across things like that before in research, but is that fairly universal with emotions that are studied? Or is there kind of a subset of emotions that tend to show that? aspect of being a trait and something that can happen in the moment or just just can you give us a little context on like what does that mean is that unique is that not unique what's what's the deal honestly i am not sure how unique it is in terms of other emotions or not i would imagine that it's not unique if i think about other emotions like joy or gratitude i would i would see how there would often be a distinction between trait and state But it's not something that people think about a lot, especially when, like I was saying earlier, people might feel bad about themselves when they're not feeling compersion in their poly relationships. I think that they're thinking about state compersion. They're 
thinking like, well, I'm not getting high on you having sex with somebody else. So there must be something wrong with me. Mm. But if they have a compersive attitude, which simply means feeling supportive of your partner's relationship, and you can still feel jealousy at the same time as you feel compersion or at the same time as you have a compersive attitude, then it enables you to feel like, well, it's not a black and white thing. It's not a switch that's on or off. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like that's something uh, that, you know, you saying that reminded me of a very early episode of Multiamory, probably the first time we ever did an episode on compersion, if I'm remembering correctly. So that was six years ago. <laughs> you may, now, yeah, so six years ago. Um, I'm impressed you remember. <laughs> yeah, but that, that very simple truth that compersion and jealousy are not necessarily mutually exclusive, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I know for myself when I think about my own embodied experiences of, I guess, what we would call state state compersion, often have feelings of jealousy mixed in with it. It's hardly ever this very pure, transcendental, exciting experience. And Mm -hmm. I do think that that truth is not something that necessarily gets a lot of airtime in um, a lot of non-monogamy or polyamory-focused content. Right. And it helps, you know, to see it as a spectrum or as a gradient rather than this. You either have it or you don't. It helps normalize it and makes it more accessible. Right. Yeah. That it's not some magical thing that once you achieve it, you never experience jealousy. Right. And you'll have it forever. It's more, Mm -hmm. I guess, normalizing it just like any other emotion. I keep coming back to the example of a friend getting a promotion. Mm -hmm. Where absolutely every time some of my good friends get huge, great promotions. I'm like, that's so awesome. I'm so happy for you. And also a part of me is going, ah, oh, man, they make so exactly. much more money than I do. Or God, yeah, right. job seems awesome, whatever it is. And totally. I think that like, we all get that. But when it comes yeah. to relationships, there's kind of a block of, oh, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's a great, that's a very good example because you're not going to react to your friend, you know, exposing the very jealous part of you that's underneath the scenes. You're able to make the distinction and look at the jealous part and say, well, okay, I am jealous, but I'm not going to let that part influence my respect for this friend or influence the bigger part of me that just wants to give him a hug and say, congrats, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So it's it's good to be able to see and embrace both parts. Yeah. So we're really excited to get into your study and what that's all about. But before we get to that, we want to take a quick moment to talk about how our listeners can support this show and to keep it going and keep amazing content like Marie's research coming at the world for free. Maybe we can help normalize that word comparison. <laughs> <laughs> For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. All right, Marie, I've been looking forward to this part of the episode. Can you tell us about your study? What is it that, like, give us the whole thing? How's the study work? Mm -hmm. And then we'll get into the results. 
All right. So like I said earlier, it's a qualitative study. It's based on interviews, which are between 45 minutes and an hour and a half long. So it's a lot of content per participant. So there's less participants than you would see in a quantitative study. In my case, there are 17 participants. So it sounds low, but it's still a lot of data when you go deep into the questions that you're asking. So the participants were mostly American, couple Canadians, and they were all over the country. I did all the interviews over Zoom or Skype. And um, I asked them two categories of questions. So my research meant to answer, first of all, what is the experience of compersion? Really go deep into their mental, embodied, emotional experience of compersion, and then what are the factors that either promote it or hinder it? So Mm. these were the two research questions. And then I went into details with each one of them. So kind of as they answer it, you would ask follow-up questions or like, tell me more about that. Okay. Yeah, just like you guys are doing. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, So we've been doing a study for six years now. Hmm. (laughs) About about 45 minutes to an hour long each time. Hmm. (laughs) You should get some academic credit. So so what what have you found so far? Are you still in the process or is this ready to be published? So it's almost ready to be published. I'm just finalizing the last chapter, which is going to be conclusions. Um, so I mostly have the results. I am just going to give you some sneak peeks because I can't talk in a final way. Okay, this is it because it's not published yet. Right. But the main things that I found that I can talk about is that there's three great categories of factors that help people or hinder people from feeling compersion. There's going to be individual factors such as self-confidence well-being, and also the ideology, the commitment to polyamorous values and ideals. So these are the individual factors. There's going to be relational factors. So how safe do you feel in your relationship? How do you relate to your metamor? And how do you perceive the benefits from your partner's relationship on your life? on your life and your partner's life. And then third, there's going to be social factors. And these are, are you within a community that promotes your identity as a polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous person? And do you feel like that greater community is supporting you? Or on the other hand, is it shaming you? Is it trying to diminish your polyamorous identity? And is it being an obstacle? to you feeling pride in who you are. So these are, I would say, like the broad lines of what I found so far. Wow. Okay. There's a lot there. There's a lot there to think about. (laughs) There's a whole lot there to think about. Um, Yeah. So did you find pretty consistently, uh, I I guess, I I don't quite know how I want to put my question, but like the individual factors, the relational factors and the social factors, was it pretty consistently that these things could like help or hinder quite equally? So as in, you know, if your relationship feels pretty secure, it's most likely going to have a positive correlation with you being able to access compersion versus if it's not feeling secure, it's probably going to hinder it. Was it, did it feel kind of like, um, like those things mirrored each other pretty equally in that way? Yeah, I would say so. There wasn't many surprises there. I would say that It was quite intuitive in the way that it worked, where, yes, you would probably hypothesize that that security in a relationship would promote compersion. And and yes, that was one of the things that came up most often. Right. Yeah. Was there anything that did surprise you when you were looking through your data? Um, Well, there was the idea that compersion and jealousy can coexist. I thought this was a very interesting finding and it was repeated by so many people. The idea that is not it's not you have it or you don't. It is something where you can have a big part of you and maybe the more cognitive part of you be in a compulsive state, but yet there can be a 
underlying feeling of jealousy, perhaps at the gut level. So the idea that there are so many layers to those experiences and those emotions, and these layers don't necessarily align. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Finding what you have found from this, how do you think that uh, people might apply this like practically or pragmatically or, or, you know, how would people operationalize this? I'm thinking of all the people who are listening to our show, you know, some people who are um, compersion junkies and like feel it all the time and absolutely love it. And some people who, who are like, I've never felt this and I don't understand why anyone would feel it. Like, so knowing this, that there's kind of these three big pillars that you're looking at, how do you think that someone might take this, these findings, this knowledge and apply it in their own lives and in relationships? Mm-hmm. So, of course, the people who feel it all the time probably don't need me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the people who might want to feel more of it can look at the different pillars and the different factors that do generally promote compersion or those that hinder compersion and look at their own experience in comparison and say, well, am I feeling secure in my relationship? If not completely, how can I work on that? Am I feeling secure within myself? Am I practicing self-care? Am I getting my needs met? Am I well informed about, you know, the the broader ideologies surrounding polyamory? And am I feeding my mind with those ideas rather than just mainstream content around relationships? Because, of course, what we feed our minds becomes influential on our emotions? Um, Am I surrounding myself with people who are validating my identity as a poly person? Or am I surrounding myself with people who are implicitly shaming me? So someone can just go down the list of those factors and identify where there is room for improvement and where they're already doing great. There's one thing that you mentioned that kind of perked up my ears, perked up or pricked up, one of those, um, but under like the relational category, I, I think pricked, pricked, I don't know, under the relational category, you mentioned that something that can help or hinder is how you perceive the benefits of your partner's relationship on your life, which I think is really interesting. And I'm curious mm-hmm. to know if you can share what were some of those perceived benefits that people felt when thinking about their partner's relationship? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the biggest ones was to diminish the feeling of pressure of fulfilling all of your partner's needs. So there were people who gave example like, well, my partner really likes to go dancing, but I don't really like to go dancing. (laughs) And I don't want to feel like I'm the only resource for my partner to do that. So it makes me really happy if they have another partner who really likes to go dancing and then I feel like my partner can be happy and I don't have to feel guilty because I don't like dancing. Yeah. So that's a big one that comes up all the time. Yeah. And I can also easily see how people can very easily go to the flip side of that of even if I don't like dancing, I know for some people it can be really hurtful that their partner go dancing with someone else. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So it makes sense how it's kind of like two sides of the same coin there. Right, right. Yeah, it comes back with, you know, to really wanting your partner to be happy and also letting go of the idea that you have to be the source of that happiness. Another one that came up was sometimes differences in sexual desire, where one person, and sometimes it happens over the course of a long-term relationship, one person starts wanting more sex or maybe different kinds of sex. Maybe one person really wants kinky sex and the other person doesn't. And it just creates more fulfillment for this person to have another sexual partner outside of the primary relationship, if that's a primary situation, that is a kink partner specifically. So basically, the benefits usually have to do with fulfilling more needs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's the the thought that just came up with that, uh, with that thing about do you feel jealousy that they're getting to experience something else without you to me seems to be related to how guilty you feel over not liking that thing that your partner likes. And I think Mm -hmm. that that would be something interesting to look into, but I feel like I notice it a lot with 
partners who were uh, previously in a long, longer term monogamous relationship who then open up. I feel like there can be this kind of embodied sense of guilt over the fact that I don't like camping and you love camping and it's been a problem. So then when you start dating someone who goes hiking all the time, they love it. I'm going to feel more jealous because I've kind of internalized this feeling of guilt about it mm-hmm. versus you like hiking. You just don't like camping. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, just, you feel guilty personal. about not yeah. liking camping. I do feel a little bit <laughs> guilty about a little, it. Uh, a couple Aww. times. Because everyone Aww. gives me shit for it constantly. But but then I think about getting into a relationship with someone who maybe already goes camping a ton with their partner and I don't like camping. And I'm like, that's not something I'm going to do. It's like, cool. I don't feel as guilty about it. So I think that's an interesting dynamic there of have you internalized guilt about that, mm-hmm. that aspect? Yeah, that is interesting. And I would imagine, and I don't know for sure, but I think it could have to do with internalized mononormativity. So like, it's kind of like internalized homophobia for gay people, like that little voice that just comes from the dominant culture and keeps telling you, well, you know, we're doing this poly thing, but really I should be able to fulfill all of my partner's needs. And yeah. and they're doing this with somebody else because I'm deficient somehow. Mm. Yeah. So. so because compersion is kind of this abstract concept to so many people, do you find that people get things wrong about it? Are there any misunderstandings kind of regarding like your the work that you're doing or the research that you're doing that you've run into? Well, there is a lot of people who think it's just not possible. Mm. That people are just maybe bypassing their jealousy and not being really sincere with their emotions. So it's really hard to believe I think for people that someone can experience compersion in the context of an intimate relationship. And maybe for some people, it is not possible. So it's hard to imagine that it is for somebody else. But again, the idea that it's not a on-off switch can help reconcile that idea that it's not just one or the other, and that it's a spectrum, that it's a, a blend most yeah. of the time. And the other thing that also like I said earlier, is a pitfall is for people to just latch on to that idea of compersion and then set that as a standard for their partners and for themselves and then put themselves down or put other people down when they're not just experiencing compersion. Mm -hmm. I would say these are the two main pitfalls. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, To speak to your, to that first one, I know Helen Fisher, who's Mm -hmm. a really big, well-known social anthropologist. She's, you know, like the what is she, the official anthropologist or sociologist for Match.com or was for many years? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, yeah, Dan Savage calls her the corporate shill for Match.com. But yeah, she's she's historically like very, very anti-non-monogamy and anti-polyamory. And yeah, she's definitely one of those who's just convinced like, no, like our brains just can't do that. Just can't Mm -hmm. do that. We're not built for it, you know, and kind of also pushes this narrative that like uh, people who claim that they feel that or that they want to feel that that yeah they're just in denial and mm-hmm. like making it up um which is i guess another reason why again researching this is so important is to kind of help go against that narrative as well yeah so i think we have to remember that all researchers are humans and no one comes to a research project without bias whether it's disclosed and conscious or not we all you know, and me included, come into it with certain hopes and beliefs. And it's very extreme in the case of consensual non-monogamy, because once we start acknowledging and toying with the idea that, yes, maybe we can have consensually non-monogamous relationships that are successful and sustainable, it threatens the status quo of our narrative of relationships. It it threatens the Disney princess narrative of love being all about one person and just being a lifelong monogamous affair. So it's it's not surprising to me that even scientists argue about that. While we're kind of on the topic of 
personal bias and mononormativity. You have a great website where you talk about all of your research and sort of your findings and stuff. What is compersion.com? Everyone should go check it out. It's really lovely. I enjoyed reading it. Um, But in there, you talk about how mononormativity kind of permeates our culture in general and specifically academia. And that's just like a, a place in which I never really thought about mononormativity kind of coming into play. Uh, maybe because I haven't been in college in a while. Uh, so I'm interested to know how that happens in academia. Just if for those of our listeners who are in in academia in any way, I'm I'm curious. Well, in the field of relationship research, I mean, we are starting to see more research on consensual non-monogamy, which is great. Every year I look at the schedule from a few conferences on sex research and there's an increasing amount of inclusion of research that is not mononormative. So I want to acknowledge that. But at the same time, it is still the mainstream narrative being that jealousy is inevitable. And I I do think that we're late <laughs> in starting to discover alternatives. I always say, well, we have iPhones, we have biochemistry, we have aerospace. We have so many areas of science that are incredibly evolved. But in the realm of relationships and love, it still feels like a black box. We still don't know very much. We still operate on a lot of assumptions, a lot of movie-type Disney narratives as our baseline of what relationships should be like. And it's very culturally grounded into the fact that academia is mostly controlled by Western people, white people, middle Mm -hmm. to upper class people, and a lot of research subjects are college students who are also mostly white, Western, upper middle class people. And that is where a lot of our data and our quote-unquote knowledge on human relationships is coming from. So a lot of room for improvement there. Mm -hmm. If we were going to start to look at other cultures and other age groups, other races, we would probably find a different picture that might be less mononormative. Yeah, I will say when I think about my college relationships, I hope no one's getting any data from that. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> I had a lot of people in college that I was dating, so you all had like very mono I, I had monogamous. Very- very yeah. monogamous college experiences. Yeah, yeah. I, I was less so, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is interesting that you point out that, yeah, you know, the area of relationship research, while, you know, it, it exists, of course, but yeah, compared to so many other arenas, there's still so many outdated models that get used and yeah, outdated assumptions that get applied to it. Um And also, I mean, actually something that really struck me watching a video of the Gottmans presenting um, a little while ago, them talking about the fact that, yeah, there's also just like very little incentive for relationship research to be funded as well. That that's Mm -hmm. another challenge is, is, I mean, the government's certainly not funding relationship research, really. (laughs) They don't care. You know, unless it's, unless it's for figuring out, you know, something that's directly going to benefit the government in some way. But as far as like stuff, knowledge that would benefit all of us, um, that, yeah, it's, it's just already hard to get that off the ground is my understanding of it true true especially non-monogamy research the government is not going to fund that well right Gosh, I, yeah. I, keep, I keep saying that i feel like non-monogamy research will blow up when someone figures out a really good way to monetize it because with mm-hmm. monogamous relationships sell we sell weddings which are a yeah. huge you know billion dollar industry right weddings are a, a significant portion of the economy, significant enough that it's worth sites like Match.com hiring mm-hmm. hiring people like Helen Fisher <laughs> to, you know, to... Well, and the to, government incentivizes marriage. And, yes, well, that, too. that too, yeah. 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 So, so there's a lot of incentive there. There's money to be made from saying we've got data about relationships if they're monogamous. And I feel like... There's just not that for non-monogamy. And that's kind of 
I almost want to say by design, where it's kind of taking away this idea that we all have to strive for this one monolithic sort of goal for how our relationships should look that everyone wants to sell us with their magazines and movies and all of that. But mm-hmm. it's harder to motivate people to to fund research for that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's part of the settler colonial culture in this country. When, when the colonizers came and found the natives not being monogamous and not abiding by you know, European rules, one of the things that they made them do if they did not kill them first was to start pairing up in monogamous marriages. Mm. So it is part of the machine, quote unquote, Mm. the economical machine that runs society and just the the cultural norms. It's, It's not something that just occurred to all of us naturally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I always think about it as you know, we're in the, just this weird place where monogamy and especially married monogamy is the state sanctioned relationship. And when you put it that way, people get uncomfortable. But but it's like it's like true. It is the state sanctioned yeah. relationship. That's just what it is. It's the only state sanctioned relationship other than maybe the parent child relationship. Um, that's about what we got. And now I'm trying to think of like what bizarro world would we have to be where the government would actually be um, funding research on non-monogamous relationships. Um, yeah. <laughs> it would have to be very sex positive. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got a long way to go for that. but Or else, dream. or else, again, like you were saying, Jace, if we're going in more, if we keep staying on this very hyper-capitalist track, that once non-monogamous communities become enough of a commodity or enough of a market, you know, if someone is able to launch the app like Airbnb that is able to connect you to like your little polycule commune with weekly D&D nights or something like that, like once that market gets cornered, then maybe we'll get more research. I don't know. I'm just uh, spitballing here. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have a we'll have a company meeting. We'll figure out. Yeah. Figure we'll out how to we'll do try that. to figure out how we can monetize non-monogamy best. <laughs> the real money's at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so looking over again, the findings of your research and looking at those, those three really big factors that influence compersion, um, in either positive or negative ways, I'm thinking back to what we were talking about in the first half of the episode, talking about the example of how you feel when a friend gets a promotion or gets something that you really wanted. And I'm wondering, do you feel like those particular factors, the individual relational and social factors, do you feel like that's kind of knowledge that we could also use to apply to this non-relationship uh, setting or this non-monogamy setting? Absolutely. It's a very good point. I had not thought about it until now. Well, but... you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that's going into my discussion section. <laughs> So, yeah, I would say, of course, the individual individual factors in terms of am I getting my my needs met? Am I mentally on track with the idea of compersion and shared joy and sharing somebody else's happiness are completely relevant? And then the relational factors, I would say mostly the quality of the relationship. If it's a friend that's very close to you, you're going to be more likely to, I would say, feel the compersion and the sympathetic joy more strongly than if it's just an acquaintance when they get a promotion. Let's take that example. Um, and then the social environment as well, I think, is very relevant. It's about does my social environment promote cooperation? Let's say you're in a company that promotes cooperation between colleagues, it's going to be more easy to feel that kind of compersion towards your friend than if you're in a very competitive environment where it's cutthroat and everyone fights for the same crumbs. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that makes Good sense. Point. No, that's interesting. I mean, because now I want to, I mean, I know that your research isn't published yet, and so it's not official yet, but I am excited of kind of thinking about these three pillars and applying it to areas of my life where I'm more likely to feel envy or jealousy. I know for me, these days, I tend to have much more of a jealousy response around professional success, you know, Mm -hmm. of like seeing close friends of mine who get something that I feel like I want to be the next step in my career or things like that. And I'm definitely curious about kind of using this framework to kind of look at all those different factors and think about like, huh, where's what area might I shift in a particular way? Right, right. 
I mean, there's so many good ways to deal with jealousy. And one of the gifts, I would say, of jealousy in itself is to eliminate the things that we want and give us an example of how this person can achieve them. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. I think, well, if I'm jealous of somebody, I'm just going to imitate them. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to be inspired. And it takes the confidence to say, well, if it can happen to them, it can happen to me. So that's the individual factor of self-confidence, but also to really look at an example as an inspiration rather than a put down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's, that's, I like that. I like that reframing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not that easy, but. <laughs> <laughs> right. Easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Well, gosh, I, I have, so many things that I would love to to keep talking about and asking you and telling you that you should do studies about. Uh, but, but we're at the end of our time for this episode. So can you just tell our listeners where they can find more of you and your work? Absolutely. So I have two websites. One is the Compersion website where I talk about my work, about my research. And I also give a list of resources and prior research about Compersion. So it's really helpful for anyone who's interested in reading more. It's www.whatiscompersion.com. And if you are interested in doing some coaching with me, I have a coaching practice for love and relationships. And the website for that is loveinsight-dating.com. So loveinsight, all in one word, dash dating.com. Excellent. So we're actually going to be sticking around with Marie for a bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers, talking a little bit more about Marie's work as a dating and relationship coach. Uh, of course, all of you listening, we would love to hear from you, your thoughts about this episode, your experience with feeling compersion. Do you feel like you've had experience feeling that state compersion versus the trait compersion? Do you struggle with this topic? We want to hear your opinions. So the best place to share your thoughts with us and with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and you can join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. 